had someone to love me, someone to call me their own. Oh, I wish I had someone to live with, cause I'm tired of living Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my as my as my foundation, a little source material. Uh, currently, I am looking at Theodore Dreiser's wonderful novel, An American Tragedy, um, originally published in 1923. Um, it's it's a massive novel. If you haven't read it or not come across it. Yet, coming in the Library of America version at about 900 pages, it's it's so large it encompasses an entire volume all by itself. And sometimes that happens with the Library of America. Usually not. I mean, it's got that Bible-thin paper, and usually there's a handful of novels in each volume. Here's just the one massive book. But it's a really nice edition of, of this story. Um, so we're about halfway through this novel. Uh, about We're at page 520 by... Um, by, by uh, in the, in this particular version, it's a novel essentially about the murder, um, a, a real life murder that took place in 1906, and it's kind of a fictionalized version of that, where Dreiser really tries to get into the social context and even the political context that hovered around this this murder, and he wanted to understand why it happened, what are the lessons we can learn from this this tragedy. And he really wanted to get into the internal, like, mind. What drove a young person who had a decent life and an upwardly mobile life and, and had a bright future to, to murder? The central event of the novel is actually about to take place in the section I'm going to look at today. But let me just quick, briefly reveal where we've come through in the previous um, five episodes. So we met our main character, uh, Clyde Griffiths. Um, and how he kind of moved away from his family in Kansas City to kind of venture out on his own. He, he grew up in a very religious environment with a family tied to the uh, the kind of the mission movements, the urban mission movements of, of the turn of the century, the Salvation Army type of movements. And he moved away from that, got a job, got involved in different circles, started sleeping with prostitutes, and eventually started dating a woman named Hortense. During his courtship of Hortense, he turned his back on his sister who had been basically seduced by a young um, gallant um, got gotten pregnant and then abandoned his sister needed money but he instead gave the money to Hortense eventually he has to leave Kansas City though because of a car accident that led to the death of a child that he had to flee from so he was involved in a hit and run and had to flee Kansas City he eventually travels around, but he eventually makes it to his uncle's factory in like her just upstate New York, uh, a collar factory, where through his name and through his family connections, he's able, or basically through his name, the fact that he is the nephew of the owner of that factory, he got a job in the factory. He was warned repeatedly not to fraternize with the girls who worked at the factory, yet he did, largely because he was excluded from the social life of, his, of Griffith's family because he was deemed as kind of lower class and not worthy, and especially because of his cousin, um, 
Gilbert didn't really want him around. So excluded from that, he turned to fraternize, after all, with the working class. And he starts seeing one young woman uh, named Roberta Alden. Um, Roberta Alden eventually gets pregnant by him in the, in the, in the wintertime. This is around the same time that he starts getting invited to a higher socials network and a higher social circles through other, other people, particularly a young woman named, named Sandra Finchley, uh, who's the daughter of another factory owner in the area, in like Kirchis area. And he gets into that and he starts, he decides essentially he's going to abandon Roberta and, and basically try to press his luck with, with Sandra Finchley and other people who he deemed in the class that he wants to, to rise up to. However, uh, he learns that Roberta is pregnant um, and he kind of freaks out about this. He eventually tries to get a abortion for her. He tries first a chemical abortion, induced abortion with, with uh, basically medicines and medications. When that doesn't work, she, she tries to set her up with a doctor who will perform an abortion, but abortions being illegal in New York State at the time, uh, he, she can't get one. And he eventually just uh, essentially abandons her. And she sends him love letters. She sends him letters begging for his attention, begging for him to visit. And eventually she says, you simply have to marry me. That's the only way I can get out of this. We don't have to stay married together forever, but my son needs a name or my child needs a name. And we need to be married when I give birth. Otherwise, you know, my life will be ruined. Clyde really doesn't want to pursue this plan because he's interested in other women by this point. He just wants to get rid of Roberta, but he really doesn't know how. Um, and as we get to the midpoint of the novel, things really start to come to a head. Uh, Roberta starts to write him increasingly threatening letters, letters that suggest that if she doesn't marry her or he doesn't come and talk with her, because I think by now she's kind of living with her parents um, and waiting for Clyde to come visit and basically to marry her if he doesn't do that if he doesn't care for her and marry her and take acknowledgement for this child she's going to come to Lycurgus and reveal herself and reveal what Clyde did which would threaten his job his social standing and his future in kind of upper society of Lycurgus and so she's basically trying to force his hand both of these characters have a lot of authority on each other at this point. Clyde, by ignoring Roberta, can force her into destitution and eventually force her to maybe live in a like a halfway house for unwed mothers kind, kind of situation. I mean, there weren't that many options for single mothers in those days. But of course, Roberta has the power to destroy his social standing in Lycurgus. So they both have a weapon they can use against each other. And it's about who's going to like... Roberts is about ready to trigger her weapon, right? And in her increasingly desperate letters, she demands his attention and, and demands essentially his merit, like that she, he marries her. Here's a little segment from her letters. And by the way, Dreiser based these letters that are reprinted in the story on the real letters from the, from the historical case. Quote, Clyde, I've done nothing but cry since I got here. If you were only here, I wouldn't feel so bad. I do try to be brave, dear, but how can I help thinking at times that you never come to come for me when you haven't written me one single note and have only talked to me three times since I've been up here? But then I say to myself, you couldn't be so mean as that, and especially since you have promised. Oh, won't you come, won't you? Everything worries me so now, Clyde, for some reason, and I'm so frightened, dear. I think that of last summer and then about this one and all my dreams. 
It won't make any real difference to you about your coming a few days sooner than you intended, will it, dear? Even if we had to get by on a little less. I know we can. I can be very saving and economical. I'll try to have my dresses made by then. If not, I'll do what I have and finish them later. I'll try and be brave, dear, and not annoy you so much. If only you will come. You must. You know, Clyde, it can't be any other way, although for your sake I wish it could. Please, please, Clyde, write and tell me that you'll be here at the end of the time you said. I worry so and get so lonesome here by myself. I'll come straight back to see you if you don't come to by that time you said, end quote. So that's the threat, right? I'll come to see you. And by coming to see her, you know, the threat is going to be exposing. And later on, she's much more even overt saying, if you don't show up, I am going to going to tell everyone and like her just that you got me pregnant. So um, that then leads us to the central event of the novel, which is the death of, of Roberta. Now, one thing to remember is that Clyde has already, by this point in the story, pretty much come up with a plan to to kill Roberta. He doesn't have really the details worked out, but he read a newspaper story about a couple that drowned in a, in a lake nearby. And the woman's body was found, but the man's body wasn't. And, you know, they just assumed the man drowned too, but they couldn't find the body. So he thinks he can sort of pull that off. Like if he goes with her to the lake under kind of a pseudonym, under a different name, no one will know it's him. And then he can kill her on a lake, drown her, and then he'll just go on with his life as Clyde Griffiths and no one will know it was him. So he very naively thinks he can get away with this. And um, he's kind of pursuing this plan. Now, it's... And the way he does this is he says, okay, basically to... Roberta, he says, okay, I'll, I'll marry you. We'll get together and we'll, we'll do this. And he's got this whole kind of honeymoon thing planned out. Well, they'll go kind of vacationing on the lakes. They'll spend some time together and then they'll find a, like a preacher or someone who will marry them and they can kind of elope and then she can reveal herself later as having been married. And this will hopefully allow her to get around the problems she's going to have with her family eventually. I, I guess she's not showing yet. She's probably five or six months pregnant, but the parents don't seem to know yet, so I guess she's not fully showing. But, you know, Roberta wants to marry as soon as possible because the propriety of, you know, of an unmarried woman getting pregnant and what that will mean for her family and her reputation. So Clyde tells her that there's a way we can manage this that will make it look better for you. And this is the best way to do it. Now, throughout this whole section, Clyde, he wants independence and he wants the freedom and and he wants to be part of this upper class which he sees these other women and these other friends he has as a path upward into that class and so there's a lot of issues of social mobility in the backdrop of this story he also wants independence and he's willing to blame roberta a lot and as i talked about i think in the last episode roberta is there's a lot of physical sexual chemistry between Clyde and Roberta and they were really hot for each other and yeah she she was still able to like control her like morality was still a shield for her but she it wasn't a huge push for her to get convinced into having sex she probably wouldn't have done it if not for Clyde's pleading but there was certainly a lot of of sexual chemistry between these two characters um and Clyde is really willing to like run with that and just use that to justify it because he's always telling himself like, well, she had sex with me. It wasn't 
all on me, right? It takes two to tango is part of his logic. But he also, interestingly, goes back to what happened to his sister. His sister back in, you know, back in Kansas City was taken away and she got pregnant and she came back and, you know, eventually she had a decent life. I think she ends up marrying someone else. So she has the child and it, you know, the same thing happened to her and that man didn't take care of his sister. So that becomes then, you know, because it happened to her and that guy was a jerk. I can be a jerk too. It, it's a very convoluted logic. It's not very satisfying, but in a someone in a situation like Clyde's, you can understand perhaps how he's going to try to find excuses for his, his behavior. Now that's partially to justify his decision to kill Roberta because, you know, he thinks he's being wronged by Roberta by her threats towards him. So she he see, increasingly sees her as a threatening presence in his life, almost a malevolent force in his life rather than a victim. And that's something that like later in the later parts of the novel, the jury's never going to see Roberta as, as a victim, certainly. So they have this whole plan worked out of going to to Grass Lake and then they eventually go to a different lake. They travel by train, but they travel in separate cars. So it's, it's all kind of worked out that they'll kind of in incognito go to these lakes and kind of stay in a room, register as husband and wife under under fake names. Now, Clyde uses his same initials, though, because um, he's got the monograph like luggage. So he's afraid that if he uses a different name, people would, you know, recognize it. This comes back to bite him in the in the investigation phase. Now, when Clyde is off with Roberta on the lake, on the boat, you know, he, he comes there with the intention to kill her, but that's not, it seems, what happens, um, according to Dreiser's accounting. Now, in the real cases, it's based on, it seems, he just beat her with a racket and then drowned her. Here, what happens is Clyde accidentally strikes her, so she is injured, and she falls, in, like, the boat wobbles and she falls in and Clyde almost falls in too but he's able to stay on the boat and then as she's drowning because she can't swim now Clyde can swim and he could have tried to save her life and he thinks about it doing it for a moment but then he sees the solution to his problems and kind of just letting her drown so Dreiser on purpose makes it more morally ambiguous in the novel than the apparently the real the story this was based on was uh, so under what what happens here is, if, is just eventually she gets hit, she gets injured, she falls in the water, and Clyde doesn't do anything. Later on, he's going to say, well, the wind was blowing the boat away, and I couldn't get to her, and things like that. But there's actually no wind on the lake that day, and so she just, she just drowns and sinks right in front of Clyde, who does nothing to save her. So she's screaming, like, Clyde, Clyde, help me, I'm drowning. And this is what Dreiser writes. And then the voice in his ear. But this, this, is this not what you have been thinking and wishing for this while? You and your great need, and behold, and dis for despite your fear, your cowardice, this, this has been done for you. An accident, an accident, an unessential blow on your part is now saving you the labor of what you sought, and yet did not have the courage to do. But you will, but will you now? And when you need not, since it is an accident, by going to a rescue, once more plunge yourself into the horror of that defeat and failure which has so tortured you? And from which this now releases you, you might save her, but then again you may not. For see how she strikes about, she's stunned, and she's unable to save herself. And by her erratic terror, you'll draw near her now, may bring to her your own death as well. But you desire to live, and her living will make your, 
and her living will make your life not worthwhile from now on. Rest bono moment, a fraction of a minute. Wait, wait, ignore the pity of that appeal. And then, then, but there, behold, it is over. She is thinking now and will never, never see her life anymore. And that's that's the end of, of Roberta Alden and the end of book two of the American tragedy. Um, now, I'm going to read, I'm, I, I read up to page 600 for this section. So there's another chunk of 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 text at the beginning of book three the first few chapters of book three not very much but essentially what we see then is like the aftermath of roberta's death the discovery of her body and the beginning of the investigation you know of you know of of, of how she died and what she murdered and, and all that now, right away, we learn that this was, you know, of course, this, the murder was poorly planned in the first place. Now, he did go to the lake with the intention of murdering Roberta. But very quickly into book three, we learn all the mistakes he made, all the clues that he didn't consider, all the things left behind. For instance, they registered as a married couple at the hotel. And that's what the record would show. However, in Roberta's jacket, because they find her body and, and these first scenes are like at the coroner's office and the autopsy and they're, they're you know, the detectives are looking at the body. They actually find this letter and it's a letter from Roberta telling her mom that she's going to get married and that this is going to you know, kind of solve her problem. This is what the letter says. We're up here and we're going to be married, but this is for your eyes only. Please don't show it to Papa or anyone else for it mustn't become known yet. I told you why at Christmas and you're not to worry or ask questions or tell anyone except just what you've heard from me and know where I am. Not anybody. And you mustn't think I won't be getting all along all right because I will. Here's a big hug and kiss on each cheek, Mama. Be sure and make Father understand that it's all right without telling him anything or Emily or Todd or Gifford either. Do you hear? I'm sending you nice big kisses. End quote. So this letter shows that they weren't married yet and they were going to get married. And so that's already quite suspicious because they registered as Mr. and Mrs. Carl Graham, the same CG, the same initials. There are, of course, other things, too, in the, the case. For instance, the injury to Roberta's head seems to show that there was some malintention, not normally what would happen from an injury. And it's something that the coroners there have to figure out. Like, was she dead when she hit the water? Was she hit, killed by the blow? Or did she, was it an accident and she drowned? This is all ambiguous. Is there another body? Like, there's, they didn't find the male's body. So it's kind of like that other case, you know, that maybe it was a double drowning or maybe it was a murder, right? And that seems to be the two options. Uh, that the detectives are investigating. Then we meet uh, District Attorney Mason. District Attorney Mason is going to have a major role in the rest of the novel. Uh, his name is Orville W. Mason. And we learn that his intention in pursuing a prosecution of Clyde Griffiths, once he's identified and once, they, once the investigation is complete, is as much political as it is kind of moral and, and, and about justice. And that's something that overhangs the rest of the novel. It's, we haven't heard that much about politics up to this point, but this last third of this novel is heavy with the political narrative on the backdrop of the story. And it seems that Clyde is, is picked out for a public lynching to promote the career of or Orville Mason, who's trying to get elected to a judgeship, right? Now, the defense is going to be influenced by the fact that I think it's the Democrats are worried about the power of the Republicans in this in this region. And they think by undermining like by undermining this case, they're going to undermine the career of 
of or of Orwell Mason. So it becomes much more of a political thing for the lawyers, right? And it's convenient then to to essentially lynch. Um, lynch is the wrong word, obviously. Um, lynchings were extrajudicial killings. Um, I'm trying to think of the right word, but there was this idea like, kind of building up the popular frenzy. I'm trying to find the right right word to describe this, but there was a real effort to like kind of present Clyde as this vicious, malevolent young man who, you know, premeditated murdered Roberta Alden. And he, he certainly did have the thoughts of murdering her. He did have these murderous thoughts in his head, even if he hesitated at the end and let accident, fate, um, fall Roberta instead. And he didn't do anything to help her. So he's certainly morally and legally responsible for her death. But the way he gets presented in public is pushed in part by the desire of of characters like Mason to pursue their own political careers. So Mason, pretty much with the coroner's report and the evidence they have at hand, figures out very quickly that there was a murder and it's it's simply a matter of finding this, this young man who murdered her and piecing things together. Um, they're eventually, I think he's eventually able to look at the, get a search warrant for Roberta's house and, or no, for Clyde's house when they identify the name um, and how do they get it? They, I think they get it through various circumstantial evidence and interviews and, and talking to people, but all of Roberta's letters are in Clyde's trunk. So in his house, so it's all pretty clear what's going on there. You have Roberta's letter, you have Clyde's letters, you have, you know, evidence that people saw them together and things like that. So, that this was an affair, that and that 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 she was pregnant. All of this is is makes the case pretty black and white from the DA's point of view. Um, but the first thing he does, and this is in chapter four of book three, is he Orville Mason goes to talk to Titus Alden, visits him in the house um, from from Bridgeburg. That's where the murder took place, and he introduces himself to the attorney general, and then you know tells her tells him that that Roberta's dead and um, Titus Alden of course has a big emotional breakdown at the news about this but he eventually gets stable enough that he's able to report on what he knows now he doesn't know anything really about the relationship between um, Clyde Griffiths and and Roberta though but Mrs. Alden though who had this closer relationship with Roberta, knew more about her situation, knew that she was seeing this young man, is able to mention Clyde Griffiths, who I don't think Roberta ever said him by name, but more alluded to him, but they had conversations about him um, just because he was the supervisor and everything. And then it doesn't take Mason long to tie the initials CG to Clyde Griffiths, and he zeroes in on, on him being the perpetrator. Mason then quickly gets a search warrant for Clyde Griffith's room and he gets it. He goes to the house. He, he's able to search it and he quickly finds the letters I referred to before. All the letters from Roberta were kept in a trunk um, and they clearly lay out most of what happened in this story. So the, the DA has a pretty firm idea that he did it. So the investigation is very quick and I, I like what Dreiser did here because there's so much build up to the murder and <laughs> by Clyde and I, that could have been a bigger part of the story is the investigation and they could have had more hand wringing by the detectives and more clue chasing and and that could have been the story but no instead we we see it as a slam dunk case 
in which the detectives barely had to lift a finger to identify who the perpetrator was. That was really clever and well done, I think. And it just, you know, a long investigation would have distracted from the story and the tone and all that. But it also makes Clyde look so preposterously bad at crime, which I think just adds to his character in a way and adds to the tragedy of it all. Um, you know, he thought he could outsmart the police. He thought he had a good plan. And, and with, even when it, with it going wrong and he'd been, a, I guess, a little bit lucky in that he didn't actually, you know, strangle her or push her or, or whatever. He, you know, he makes so many mistakes and he leaves so much evidence behind and he just didn't think things through very well. And the police have no problem, find, you know, locating him. Then in Chapter 6, we we uh, return to, to Clyde Griffith and we find out what he did after immediately after the murder. So we get a bit of flashback flashback here of him fleeing through the dark at night, you know, hiding out after the, after Roberta dies and he eventually meets up with his friends, um, Sandra and, and the others. And so he, the plan is he'll just be there and that'll be sort of his alibi and he'll just be hanging out with them and no one will connect back to him. In fact, this is what he thinks at the end of chapter six. But neither Clifford Golden or Carl Graham were Clyde Griffiths by any means. And they could not possibly identify Clyde Griffiths with either Clifford Golden or Carl Graham. For he had taken every precaution, even searching through Roberta's bag and purse here at Grass Lake while at his request at breakfast, she had gone back to see about the lunch. Had he not? True, he had found those two letters from that girl, Teresa Bozer addressed to Roberto at Blitz, and he had destroyed them before ever leaving for Gun Lodge. As for that toilet set in his original case with its label Whitley Lycurgus on it, while it was true that one had been compelled to leave it, still might not one, Mrs. Clifford Golden or Mrs. Carl Graham, had brought that in Whiteley's, and so without the possibility of it being traced to him? Assuredly. And as for her clothes, even assuming that they did go to prove her identity, would it not be assumed by her parents as well as others that she had gone on this trip with a strange man by the name of Golden or Graham? And would they not want her hushed up without further ado? At any rate, he had hoped for, that, for the best, kept up his nerve, put on a strong, pleasant, cheerful front here so that no one would think of him as the one, since he had not actually killed her anyhow. End quote. So not we get his whole justification. We get his belief that he's outsmarted the police. And we, by this point, we already know that he's been identified in the police are looking for him in this kind of this the first few chapters of of the section and i guess that's all we really have to talk about for this section of of the novel it covered roughly pages 500 to around 600 maybe 620 or something and it basically deals with the murder and the aftermath and the investigation and i I think the key points here are how clyde griffith was did sort of change his mind at the end but fate turned in his fortune and completed the goal that he wanted and this provides a space for him as you know as a as a person to justify what happened and what he did and he can always tell himself that I didn't mean to kill her it wasn't my intention and she had just died and that's going to thicken the plot in the in the in the trial that follows but I, I think really for me the core of this section is just it's not really humorous but the contrast between Clyde's confidence and and confidence in his plan and confidence that he's like you know did everything properly and just how reckless and you know how many mistakes he actually made everything from leaving the letter in Roberta's pocket to like he ends up leaving the tripod that hit Roberta 
back in the woods so it can be found later on. He, you know, used the initial same initials. You know, he, there's so many people that sort of knew about him and knew his name. All these mistakes were there from the beginning. I mean, a lot of them things he probably didn't have much he could do about. Um, you know, he, he had no way of knowing what Roberta said to to their his her parents, for instance. But nevertheless, he he has such confidence, and you know that he's going to get away with it. So it also really looks bad he, that he drowns this girl and goes to hang out with his rich friends. I mean, it it so it it, it fits the picture so well. And at the trial, he's only going to be he's able to be presented as like basically essentially a rich person who seduced and killed a young working class woman. It just adds so much richness. Even though he's poor and he's from a poor background, he's able to get tagged as as a rich seducer um so there's some irony in this section to be sure um but it's mostly plot driven it's mostly about the murder itself and all the events leading up to it and the clues clyde leaves behind and then the quick way that the police and the in this case it's really mason who does most of the investigation the district attorney identifies clyde griffith as the the culprit so that's going to be it for this section of An American Tragedy by Theodore Dreiser. Um, as always, thanks so much for listening. If you have any of your own comments about this section of the novel or the novel as a whole or this murder case or the real historical events that surrounded uh, Dreiser's effort to, to tell this story, please send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or you can leave a review or leave a comment below. Um, next time, I will look at roughly pages 620 to around 720 or so in in the book and that will cover mostly the the lead up to the prosecution um, of, of Clyde Griffiths his time in jail how he gets arrested and, and those kinds of events I, it might even get into the trial a little bit so again thanks for listening thanks for sharing your time if you're reading along you know it's it's I think it's up through chapter I want to say chapter 19 or 18 chapter 18 of book three of of the american tragedy depending on the version you have you may not have the same page numbers as me so that that's where we'll be looking next time uh thanks again uh see you next time